If you recall, last week, hopefully if you're here, we started to uh, look at uh, the uh, what I've called the evaluation of Christ on his churches by looking at, at the ways he specifically addresses uh, seven specific churches. And last week we focused on uh, the five churches that Jesus had something against, and we looked uh, at how there's kind of this clear downward path from Ephesus to, to Laodicea. Uh, while looking at the five churches, we saw that even, it, this is kind of encouraging, kind of discouraging, I guess, but we saw that even just a few decades into the church age, you can already see some clear areas where the church had some cracks, uh, where it was beginning to show some problems. Uh, there were already some issues in the church, and it's kind of a surprise when you look at that, when you think about the fact that there's so many today, there's so many movements out there that are trying to kind of recapture the experience of the early church. We want to just go back and be just like they were then and how, you know, that kind of stuff. But, but even in its earliest stages, the church had some clear issues. We saw that last week. Um, and, and, we, and we looked at how, yeah, again, like Ephesus has one main problem and it just kind of moves down this scale to big, the, how that problem, if you neglect it, leads to a bigger problem. Losing your first love leads to a bigger problem of accepting false teaching, which leads to the even bigger problem of becoming worldly, which leads to eventually a dead church and a church that thinks that it is something when in fact it's not anything at all. Um, so, seeing this, we're reminded that there are no perfect churches, uh, and, and that's kind of a line you hear a lot frequently, right? There's no perfect churches. Maybe you've heard that. If you ever find a perfect church, don't go there because you'll ruin it. You've heard that before, and that's just kind of a just kind of fun way of saying that, yeah, there's no perfect churches. And while that is true, there are no perfect churches, Unfortunately, that line, I feel like, has been used a lot to excuse churches from being faithful uh, in such a way that they don't feel like, uh, they, hey, you know, there's no perfect churches. We shouldn't be really expected to get much better. Hey, there's no perfect churches after all, so, you know, well, we have our issues too. You know, it's just kind of a nonchalant sort of way of dealing with their problems. And so, so it is true. That is a true statement. No perfect churches. But I want us to see today that while the church and every church will have its issues, because every church is made up of people who are still battling sin in their lives, there is such a thing as a faithful church, as a church that God is pleased with. And that's just, it's just so encouraging for me because I'm one of those uh, really pessimistic people that thinks that, uh, you know, if you hear a sermon like, if Jesus could write a church or a letter to your church, what would he say? I'm one of those pessimistic people that thinks that if Jesus were to write letters to churches individually today, that they'd just be these long lists of stuff that needs to get fixed and not anything really, uh, really good or praiseworthy uh, that we would find in those. That, that's just how I am. Uh, but here we see two churches specifically. That's what we're going to focus on today. Two churches specifically that Jesus has nothing against. And he doesn't write anything against it. Sure, there's sin going on somewhere in there, but apparently they're, they're handling it the way that God has told the church to handle sin. Of course, there's people still struggling with sin, but when God looks at these churches, what sticks out to him is their faithfulness. What he sees is faithfulness. So it is possible to be a church that upon an evaluation by Jesus Christ himself, Jesus Christ, the one who we just read about in chapter 4 and 5, that Jesus, it is possible for a church to be evaluated by him and be commended and not condemned. We're not uh, expected to be perfect, but we are expected to be faithful. This is super encouraging, I think, as Christians. We know that we're supposed to strive for perfection individually, right? Personally, we strive for perfection, but we always know that we have, perfection is an unattainable goal in this life, that our sanctification will not be complete until 
we are in the presence of Christ and we're completely rid of our sin nature. As a church, we know, though, that we have, as a church, an attainable goal in this life to be a church that becomes faithful and remains faithful. That's something we can attain. We can become a church or be a church that God looks at and says, that is a faithful church. So the the tough thing for us to realize is that the way that churches are shown to be faithful, though, unfortunately, is through trials and persecution. Through trials and persecution. That's what we see here as we look at these two churches. So if you're in Revelation, hopefully you're still there. Chapter 2, we won't read it all again, although that was the best part of the sermon last week. We'll we'll read, we'll focus on chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, which is the letter to the church at Smyrna, and chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, which is the letter to the church at Philadelphia. Chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And then up to 3, 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, the one uh, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not a lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my words about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write... On him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And if you remember last week, we talked about he writes these letters to individual churches, but at the end he says, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He pluralizes it, meaning that it's intended that all of his churches hear it, that all of his churches Understand what's being said to each of these individual churches. I've got three points uh, in the sermon today. I have the most sub-points on the fifth point. So, so you might want to save more room for that area. So my, my uh, three points today have to do with, with uh, persecution. Persecution and trials. And look, when I say uh, persecution... In America, I know that we don't deal with the same type of persecution that goes on in lots of other places. And throughout history, we have a much lighter persecution that that we deal with now. But that's not always going to be the case. Uh, And it is the duty um, of the church to prepare its people uh, for that persecution so that they may rise up and be faithful in it. So three points. Three points. First, it will be the the expectation of persecution. The expectation of persecution. The second point will be the source of persecution. And the third one will be our response. Our response to persecution. So, point number one. The expectation of persecution. 
For this, uh, we need just kind of quickly to look back at what we talked about a little bit last week and uh, be reminded uh, just a little bit more about what the context for these passages of Scripture that, that we're looking at today and the structure of this passage in particular. Uh, remember that these are letters written to specific churches, seven prominent churches around uh, the Asia Minor area around 96 AD while John is writing, uh, while he's in exile on the island of Patmos. And these are words, this is important, these are words that are being written by John, but dictated by Jesus Christ himself. And, and we, don't, we don't believe that the whole Bible was, was written this way. When we talk about the Bible being God's inspired word, uh, what we mean is that God used different authors and their personalities and their writing styles and their vocabulary to give us the exact words that he wanted us to have in Scripture. But just here in this specific place, it's a little different than most of what we see in the rest of the, in, of the New Testament. We see Jesus specifically telling John to write these words down. Here, write these words down that I am about to say to you. And that, that doesn't say that these are more important words than what we see in the rest of the New Testament, that they're less inspired, that those ones are less inspired by God. But it just kind of does, does show, here's Jesus taking specific, adding a note of seriousness to this. Specific, write this down, what I am going to say to you. So, so if you remember last week, we talked about the awesome way that, that we see that Jesus ordered the context of these letters, the, what, I, what we call the, the chiastic structure of them, that we have like the, the chiasm thing, which is there's two points on the end, and they, and they come and they point to a center, a main point. And, and the way the seven churches are organized is we, we have this relatively good church in Ephesus, that's being persecuted in some measure, and it's standing strong against all the forms of false teaching, every form of false teaching that's coming its way. It's knocking down, but it is showing the initial first sign uh, that it's losing its first love, the love for Christ that it had at first, and it needs to get a handle on that. And then on the other end, we have the church at Laodicea, which has become just completely corrupt. There's no sign of anything good in it. God gives them no commendation whatsoever. Uh, it's become completely corrupted by false teaching and worldliness. So we have those two bracketing it. And then on the next inside, we have um, Smyrna and Philadelphia. And these are the two faithful churches where God says nothing against them. There's no condemning words against them in those two letters. And then that kind of points us to the three, the slide we see that we talked about that I won't go into detail again this week that we see in those middle three churches. When, when we see uh, the church of Pergamum, which, has, which is experiencing persecution and some people are standing against it, but it's starting to kind of allow false teaching and worldliness in. And then Thyatira, which apparently has endured something and is doing a little bit of good, but it's only one sentence worth of commendation. And they have really started to let false teaching and worldliness in all the way down to Sardis, which just has, it says, a few people left who are not, uh, who are still following me, who are still being faithful. And the rest have just given way to, it says, soiled their garments. So, so we see that going on in, in this structure. The main issue here in these middle three t churches that, I, that, that it's focusing on, the main problem is the acceptance of false teaching and worldliness. They, they keep giving in more and more until the point where they're dead and they don't realize they're dead. And so when you look at these letters within this structure, you see that persecution of some sort or another plays a big part. Right? It, because it's a really big issue in the two faithful churches. And you see it a little bit if you look at the persecution things, if you look at the call to endure, you can see big issue in the faithful churches. You see it is an issue in 2-3, if you look at 2-3 in the church in Ephesus. 
Uh, he says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. So that's, that's the type of language that talks to them. They're enduring some sort of persecution, some sort of slander being leveled against them. Um, in Pergamum, in uh, 2.13, if you look there, you, it talks about Antipas, the faithful witness who was martyred for the sake of Christ. Um, and, and you see that. And then even a little bit in 2.19 in Thyatira, you see him talking about patient endurance. Uh, so, so that kind of indicates that they're still maybe fighting against persecution and slander a little bit. Then you get to Sardis and Laodicea, and there's no sign that there's any kind of fight, any kind of struggle. There's no sign of persecution against them there. So, so why wouldn't there be persecution in the unfaithful churches? Well, the clear implication is that as you try to be faithful, you will endure persecution on some level. And the more you stray from faithfulness, you're not going to be, you're not going to be, have to worry about feeling that persecution, feeling that slander from the world for the sake of your faith. Because you're giving in to worldliness. You're giving in to false teaching. So the way out of persecution then, according to these observations, is pretty obvious. Uh, the easy way out would be, okay, if I don't want to be persecuted, I don't want people hating me, then the easy way out of this is to begin tolerating false teaching and tolerating sinful behavior and just kind of not making such a big deal out of that. That's one way to get through persecution. That's the sinful wrong way. And the rest of hopefully this message will will help us see the right way to relate to it. Um, so, it, but that's the worldly way. That's what we see so many people doing because they don't want to be hated, because they don't want to be persecuted. They just, okay, what do, what do I have to give up so you guys will stop saying mean stuff about me? You know, so you guys will start coming to our church again. What do we have to, what, where can we compromise? So, um, unity and avoiding conflicts and friction is it, it, that's a good goal for us to have within the church. But that should never be our goal when it comes to our relationship with the world. According to this passage, persecution of some form is a sign that you're doing something right. It doesn't always mean... Like, you can be persecuted for being a jerk, too. Don't, don't get me wrong. But that aside, persecution is far from a sign that things are going wrong. It's more likely a sign that things are going right. Churches not experiencing persecution in this letter are the ones that demonstrate an increase in their tolerance and, and embracing of false teachings and worldliness. And you can see how embracing false teaching leads to embracing sin and worldliness, right? That's like a logical uh, jump. It just logically goes in that direction. So you start accepting false teaching, and so that means you're going to stop taking such a strong stand against sin. There's a large amount of purported Christian teaching and books out there that are about overcoming issues in this life through the type of faith that leads to rewards and easy living and all that kind of stuff that you get in this life. Teaching that pretty much any conflict you're experiences is experiencing is a sign of being unloving. Uh, there's books about having a stronger faith in Jesus, how that can lead you to an easier life, to a better life, to wealth, to great family relationships, and essentially to just being liked by everybody. This, this type of stuff, and when you start, so when you start accepting that type of false teaching into your church, then of course it naturally leads to worldliness and embracing sinful lifestyles because those types of things are everybody's goal. Non-Christians, Christians like, everyone wants that. Like, yeah, I want wealth. I want, yeah, that, that sounds great. I want people to like me. That sounds nice. No problems. That sounds good. Everyone wants that. Christians who embrace this false teaching, what the world sees is, oh, they're just using Jesus as their means to reach the exact same goal that all of us are trying to reach, which is basically a happy life in this temporal setting. So, of course, in that situation, you're not going to have conflict with the world because you're striving after all the same things. You'll make all kinds of compromises on sexual sin because the goal is your temporal happiness. Of course, you're not going to confront sin in other people's lives either 
Because who cares if you leave them in their sin as long as you don't make either one of yourself or them uncomfortable. There are other places you can go in Scripture to see that as individual believers, right? if we're following Jesus and trying to live for Him, we'll be persecuted. That's what Jesus says in John 15.20. If they persecuted Me, they're going to persecute you. Second uh, Timothy three twelve, Paul says, "If anyone wishes to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, he will be persecuted. Persecution should be expected, because there it's a promise. So, so we should expect it. If we're a faithful church, we're tr- striving to be a faithful church. We should expect persecution in some form of another to come up against us." So that's point one in the outline. A faithful church can expect persecution. And it's actually a sign that, that, uh, that truth is precious, that Christ is priority when persecution hits. That's point one. So since we know that we can expect persecution, uh, where will we see that? Where will we see it coming from? Where does persecution come from? That's point two, the source of our persecution. Source of our persecution. We can see persecution coming from, at least in these passages, four different places, which which are essentially a lot the same places we see it coming from now. First, we see persecution in here coming from a group called the Synagogue of Satan. Now, some of you might not have ever been persecuted by the Synagogue of Satan uh, yourselves. That's most likely true. But but as we look at this, I I want to show you that it is similar to kind of what we deal with today. Synagogue of Satan, we see them named specifically actually in both of the letters, right? That's the, that's the common thread between uh, Smyrna and Philadelphia. Both of them are being attacked by whatever the synagogue of Satan is, right? Did you see that, right? If you look over, flip between them quickly, you can see synagogue of Satan there in both of those places. Uh, so what that is, what, what Jesus is saying here, they didn't actually go around calling themselves that, like a motorcycle gang or something. This sounds like a motorcycle gang. They didn't call themselves that. Jesus is calling, calling the Jewish religion that here. That, that sounds harsh. These are Jews who are not really Jews. That's what he says in both places. But they lie. They're physically Jews, and they maintain the Jewish teaching from a lot of the Old Testament. And they recognize the Old Testament and the Torah as Scripture and God's Word. But these are the same ones who rejected Jesus. And they're the ones who, that uh, Paul, before he was Paul, when he was Saul, that's the group he was a part of. The ones who, who oversaw the deaths of Christians and went about arresting and killing them. Jesus here calls them a synagogue of Satan. So as soon as the Jewish religion, as soon as their Messiah showed up and they rejected him, they became no different than than a satanic religion. No different. Another religion that's there to keep people away from the true religion, the true worship of his son. So they had synagogue, of course, you you recognize that term. That was the place of worship uh, where they would go and hear teaching based on the Old Testament. Uh, They believed, again, they believed they were following God. They thought they were doing God's work, but they rejected his Messiah and they clung to certain parts of the word of God, but rejected it in its fullness. And that's what we see here. It doesn't matter what you claim to believe or who you claim to follow when you put yourself in a, in, into a place where you accept parts of God's revelation, the parts you want, the parts you like, but you reject it in its fullness, you aren't just some other branch of Christianity or a part of another group of God-seekers. According to Jesus, it's, you're satanic. This is exactly what Jesus says in John 8, 42 uh, through 44, when he's being confronted by these same types of people. Remember, these religious leaders are confronting him on to what he's doing. They're questioning him. And, and Jesus says to them, as, when they respond to him, remember they say, 
they, they talk about how Abraham is their father and kind of, kind of like going to attack on Jesus and saying, we don't know who, you know, who your father was and attack on the virgin birth sort of thing. Um, if, if you read that passage, Jesus says to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So you see that Jesus equating that you fine. You, you have all of this stuff. You have this Abrahamic heritage. There's some mixture of truth in your background but you should have recognized the Messiah. And when you reject him, show that you're part of or a son of the devil. doesn't matter who you claim to be following. If you reject the son, if you reject his gospel, you're following Satan. The Jewish religion was an officially sanctioned religion by the Roman government at this time when these letters are being written. Um, that's how come they seem to have so much power because they're an officially sanctioned religion. They're able to run around to government authorities essentially telling on uh, the Christians for not being part of the Jewish religion. It's very important to the Jews at that time that they, people know that Christians aren't a part of us anymore. They're not, that's not, or not anymore. They, they're not part of us. Uh, and so they would tattle on the Christians to the Roman government. We know at this time, especially in Smyrna, Emperor worship was huge. The, the, the fact, Smyrna was really big on worshiping uh, the, the emperor. They, they loved Rome and all it stood for. And they worshiped whoever the emperor was, the Caesar at the time, at this time, Domitian. Uh, every year, what you had to do is come and burn incense on an altar to Caesar. You had to do this ev- every year. And then you were given a certificate after you did this, that essentially allowed you to buy and sell more freely within the culture. Those of the Jewish religion must have done this in some way, but they still kept meeting in their synagogues and still kept professing that they were the true followers of God. But Christians would not conform to this pattern. And so they were outed by the Jews. We see the same type of thing today. See a similar type of thing today. Much of the backlash towards biblical Christianity in our society comes from those who say they are Christians but are not. They get a, give a lot of lip service to the Bible and to God. Eighty-some percent of our country claims to be Christian, Christian uh, and various definitions about what that means to them. They give a lot of lip service to the, to the Bible, to God, and they point to those who follow Jesus as Lord and refuse to conform to their cultural gods, and they call them bigots, they call them hate mongers, and they pretty much say that's not, that's not what our Jesus teaches. Just watch one of those, or don't, it's depressing, watch one of those CNN specials when they have people from several, several different backgrounds commenting on some sort of cultural situation, And you see liberal Christians and atheists and every other religion essentially teaming up to attack the beliefs of those who hold to a traditional Christianity and believe the Bible to be the word of God. All of a sudden, all of these other religious religions and even non-religions find this common ground of ganging up on the ones who, who, who they see as 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 hate mongers or who, who won't accept everyone for what they are, who, who persist in saying that there's such a thing as sin or that people could actually be evil. This is actually one of the first ways I really became familiar with John MacArthur was I, I saw him on CNN and <laughs> there's this round table with a bunch of different, a Catholic leader, a Jewish leader, a Muslim leader, all, all of these different guys. And they went around the table and Larry King just asked them. So if you're a devoted follower of God doing your best and in your religion, does your religion say they go to heaven? And they're, yes, 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 yes. John MacArthur, no, yes. <laughs> it's just interesting. And then f- for the next hour, it's just all four of these other guys ganging up on the one person who is, try- is trying to 
show that the Bible is the word of God and we don't have the authority to decide the stuff we don't, uh, we don't want to believe or we do want to believe. It's just amazing to see these different religions, all their differences just kind of melt away when they find this common enemy. It's one of the main reasons that our beliefs are maligned so much is that everyone in the culture can look around and see so many other people who claim to be Christians not standing for the same things that we choose to stand for and wondering, why is it that big a deal? That guy's a Christian. He doesn't have an issue with it. Why do you have to? It's a culture that is telling us, essentially, we don't care if you're Christians or not. That's fine. There's just a lot of things that the Bible teaches that you need to find a way around. It's so easy for so many other people to do this, so why can't you? We have people claiming to be followers of God, but are not. Stirring the culture up against us. And that also incites uh, the government, which is the second source of persecution we see here. It's the government. Uh, it was the Roman government uh, who was physically, physically throwing Christians in prison and putting them to death. Uh, the Jewish people, you might remember that, like, the, the reason the, the Jewish people didn't come together and kill Jesus themselves was because apparently that was one of the laws that they had that they wanted to follow, was not killing, not putting, having Jesus put to death. So they had to have the Romans do it. And, and this was happening in other places just throughout. The Jewish people are essentially telling the Roman government, hey, you've got these people running around. They're cannibals. And they said that because they, they didn't understand the Lord's Supper. And they told the Roman government, they're atheists. And they said that because they, uh, Christians worshipped uh, a God that was unseen. And there no no idol form. They said, oh, those must be atheists then. There's no God that they're worshiping. They tell them those things and get them in trouble. Um, they did this uh, because, again, because, because Christians refused to say Caesar is Lord and because they didn't have uh, a right understanding of their beliefs, they were persecuted and they were thrown in prison. And we see similar things to that going on today. Again, we're not being thrown in prison. Travis isn't not up here because he's in prison somewhere. Uh, although, when the government does crack down, he'll be one of the first to go. We, we see that going on. And, and I, love, I love the sermon that, that Travis gave for us uh, after the election. Remember that? Um, it's because it does, the, the culture, it seemed as though the culture was heading in a certain direction um, where our religious freedoms are going to get taken away more and more, more of an attack on Christianity um, it's going to get tougher and tougher and tougher to be a Christian. That's where we seem to be headed. But for whatever reason, it looks like we've been given a little bit of a break. Um, and it appears that for at least the next few years, we won't feel it as much as uh, we could have. The, we won't feel the government tightening its grip on religious freedom like it seemed like it was. That might happen now. But don't fall asleep in that. It's just a break. You can already see, you can already see if you're paying attention, the Christian belief-hating culture uh, is, is rallying right now. It's rallying, and they're getting more angry. They're filling with more fury over what they're seeing happening. They're equating everything that, that's going on that they don't agree with, equating it with our faith, um, whether that's right or wrong. There, there is, it, it's, it's almost like, you know, like if you ever got snapped by a rubber band when you were a kid, you know, mean kids who did that. This is like a time where they get to pull the rubber band back more and more, so it's going to be harder and harder when they let it go. Tension is building. Tension is rising. There's a strong backlash coming. And you can bet that the overall trajectory of our country is still headed in a way that grows more and more hostile to the Bible. You can tell that when you watch anything coming out of Hollywood uh, and that, that's not changing just because uh, Hillary Clinton didn't get elected. That Hollywood didn't suddenly become moral, right? It's still getting worse. Things are getting worse. The persecution we face now, again, is nothing compared to what we see going on in other countries. But right now, we need to be faithful in what little we have to deal with. Uh, now, with, with the understanding that it is going to get worse. And use this time like 
If you haven't heard that sermon, you should go back and listen to it. You should go back and listen to it again. We need to be using this time to get stronger. And there's definitely a sense in which everything that we do here in the church is done to prepare you for persecution. There's a sense in which everything we do here should help with that. So the government, that's the second sub-point there. The third thing, the third source we see is Satan. Not just the synagogue of Satan, but Satan himself. In 2.10, uh, you see, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. The devil is going to do it. He's not going to physically manifest himself and throw them into prison. He uses the Roman government to do that. But it is, we, we are given a glimpse behind the scenes here that it is Satan who is attacking the Christian church, the faithful Christian church in Smyrna. Satan uh, hates us and he hates true faith. This is why we only see him attacking the faithful churches. It'd be such a victory for him to see true faith fail at some point. This is why he went after, if you remembered the story of Job, uh, he was desperate to see Job turn from God. He, he was, just, just take this away from him, then watch him turn. Just take this away from him, then watch it. He'll turn. Oh, he'll turn. He wanted to see it so bad. Of course, he never did. And his intention still is to see someone with true saving faith reject God and turn from him. But he never will. He never will. He, he will never get to see this not even one time, because our faith has been secured for us in Christ. Christ holds us. Christ holds us. So, so Satan attacks us. The fourth source, the main source, is the sovereign will of God. Sovereign will of God. Just like with the case of Job, the work of the devil is to bring about God's purposes. God's purposes. He has a, and remember in James where it says that he, God doesn't tempt you, but he does put you through trials. Just like, with, just like with the case of Job, the work of the devil is to bring about God's purposes. And we see that here again. Now look again at 2.10. It says, this is where we see, do not fear what you're about to suffer, behold, the devil's about to throw, you, throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, so that you may be tested. The ultimate reason you're going into prison is for the testing of your faith. The ultimate reason for this persecution isn't so that the culture can shut them up, and it isn't so that the, the Roman government can imprison them, and it's not so Satan can destroy them, it's so that they can be tested. Ultimately, our persecution serves God's purposes alone. James 1, 2, 4, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God uses the testing and trials to refine us, make us steadfast, to make us complete. It's God's intention to use the testing of our faith to bring about our sanctification. And that's supposedly, right, as Christians, the one thing that we want more than anything else, to be like Him. These are the areas where we see persecution coming from. And, and in the end, even though we see these different areas and we feel attacked from all, from, it can be from government, from fake Christians, from the world, from Satan himself, knowing it's all under the umbrella of the sovereign plan of God for your good, helps us then as we get to this last point. The third point then is our response to persecution. Our response to persecution. Number one, be encouraged that Jesus knows. Be encouraged that Jesus knows. 2.9 again, I know your tribulation and your poverty, that you are rich, 
and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but a synagogue of Satan. He knows. He knows their tribulation that they're going through. He knows their poverty. He knows what is being unjustly and wrongly said about them. He knows all of that. He knows exactly what you and I are going through. He did not just ascend to heaven and tell his church, all right, see you guys later. No, he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. He walks among his churches. He's not ignorant of any of their suffering that they're dealing with. And he knows not just in the, in the fact that he can see what's going on, but he also knows that he has experienced it himself. He knows what is going on with you. And he knows, this is even more encouraging, if you look in 10, he, in verse 10 of chapter 2 again, he says that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. And 10 days, people think it means different things. It could mean like a really large time period uh, and 10 days just represents, it could actually mean just 10 days. Or it could mean that there's a period of 10 days coming where, you'll be, where Christians are going to be rounded up and thrown into prison. And judging by what he says here, period of 10 days coming up where Christians are going to be rounded up and thrown And when he says, be faithful unto death, it's not a prison. It's not like you're going to serve a 10-day sentence sort of thing. It's 10 days of, of intense persecution where you're, where you're thrown in prison. And it's not like at the end of the 10 days, they're like, ah, oh, that was a mistake. We'll just let them all out now. But the, whatever, whatever the, the meaning of that is, the point is that Jesus knows the exact length of time that this is going to take. This is not something that's catching him off guard. It is something he knows for a fact that will happen. And he has a plan to use it. So in the midst of persecution, realize that Jesus knows. Knows. Second, understand your true resources. Understand your true resources. In the midst of persecution and trials, understand your true resources. He says... To the church at Smyrna, I know your poverty. And he uses, he actually uses, there's a couple different Greek words for poverty. Um, there's one for just being like the type of person who can't really l afford anything excessive, can just make their, you know, just has enough to make ends meet sort of thing. That and then there's another word that means beggar, like like you have nothing, you're literally dependent on other people from day to day if you're going to keep living sort of thing. Jesus uses that word here. Remember, uh, he, so he uses that, so they have nothing physically, nothing. And, because, and that makes sense, right? Because they're not going and doing the emperor worship. They're not getting, the, so it's hard for them in the culture. It's hard for them to buy and sell. So he says, I know you're poor, I know your poverty. I know it's desperate poverty. But Jesus reminds them that they are actually rich. Like you think you're poor, but you're actually rich. And you look at, change that, contrast that to the church at Laodicea. Look what they say. Remember Laodicea, the church that's not really a church? The one that thinks everything's going good, but, but there's nothing there, nothing commendable. Verse 17, he says, For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Poor, blind, and naked. He said, so there's this other church that thinks they've got everything going on, that thinks they're rich, but they have nothing. But materially, they were a wealthy church. That is, it was a wealthy place. But really, in the eyes of Jesus, they had nothing. We don't have what the world sees as riches, but we do have true riches. We know that the currency of this world is temporal. We are in a greater position. We're in a greater position. This is kind of, I was trying to think of a good illustration. This is kind of the position in, we're in, but, but an even greater one. Imagine a homeless guy who's desperate on the, at the end of his rope, and he's walking and he finds the winning lottery ticket for the big Powerball jackpot. 
and all that's standing between him and $250 million or whatever is he has to get to the place that, where he has to cash it at. Or I don't know. I've never played. I don't know how you get your winnings for lottery. Um, but I mean, he might have to walk a few miles in his dirty clothes while he's hungry and in need of a shower. But in just a few minutes, he will have so much that he won't know what to do with it. And you better believe during his walk, there is a smile on his face. He's not loathing the walk, that little tiny trial now, this little bit of his life that he has to give to get to this place where these riches are. In an even greater sense, us in this life, this life is so little, like so little bit of time compared to eternity for us to deal with some trials, be them harsh or not. So we should all the more be encouraged knowing we have true riches. doesn't matter what it looks like right now. We have true riches. With an eternal mindset, we know that nothing we have or don't have in this life really matters that much. When the end comes, what we had here won't matter. Won't matter. The difference between your house and your neighbor's house and the people with million-dollar houses, it won't, be, won't look like much when they're a heap of ash. Right? The only difference is between the, the rich person in this life and the poor person in this life, when that day comes, one of them will have lost more in that. We are in the position right now to lose nothing of any real value. Nothing. So to understand your true resources. Open your eyes. See that you are rich. Third, know that, know that earthly power is of no value. Earthly power is of no value. Look over at uh, 3.8 in the Church of Philadelphia. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. And yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Again, contrast that with what's going on in Laodicea. For you say I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. But there, these two examples. There's people who, who don't look like they have any power. And then there's people who think they've got everything they need. The church in Philadelphia, it's a small church. It was one of the smaller of these churches. And especially when you look at it through the eyes of the of the vast Roman Empire at that time. Rome, this country, this nation, that nothing has existed like it before. And then you got this little church in Philadelphia. Small, doesn't seem to have much power. And Jesus says, you have but little power. He acknowledges that. But here's what you have done. You kept my word and you have not denied my name. And as a result, Jesus rewards them. There are many people who want Christianity to be some sort of force for political power. And they are willing to make all kinds of compromises to make that work. But Jesus didn't call his church to be powerful, to be a powerful political voting block that politicians need to take seriously. He didn't call us to that. And the moral compromises that many Christian leaders have had to make to hang on to their desire to hold on to that power have completely tarnished any kind of witness they could have had to the outside world. In an effort to cling to this power, they've forsaken the actual command to the church to be salt and light. They've compromised, they gave up too much to still be that salt and light witness that we're called to be. Look at 3.8. Our job is not to seek power in the culture. Our job is to keep His Word and not deny His name. Next, know that the love of Jesus is infinitely more valuable than the love of the world. The love of Jesus is infinitely more valuable than the love of the world. Look at 3.9. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Why would we seek the love of the world and acceptance of our culture over the love of Christ? 
Know that there is a day coming when everyone will find out, even though the world may hate us because we refuse to love what they love and celebrate what they celebrate. Jesus loves us, and they'll know it. Notice it says, I have loved, indicating that he has loved us throughout all of it. Throughout all of it. It's not just something that happens to us on that day, or it's not something that they worked towards. I have loved, indicating that he's loved us through all of it, loved them through all of it. And it is a distinct, and we see from this, it's a distinct and it's a discerning love, a love that chooses us out of everyone else, that picks us, that loves us, and not them. That's what love is. On that day, everyone will see that. Everyone. You'll see that He has loved us. Those who have abandoned, those who have abandoned, made the fatal error of abandoning the exclusivity of the gospel, that have denied the faith for the sake of being loved by the world and accepted in this culture, will see that they valued having the love and approval of the world over having the love of Jesus. What a fatal mistake they've made. Next, understand your responsibilities amid persecution and trials. Understand your responsibilities amid persecution and trials. If you look back again at verse 8, it talks about the open door. The door has been opened in the church in Philadelphia. And in most places in Scripture, this means an opportunity for ministry. And we definitely won't go to these now. But Acts 14.27, write them down anyway and look at them. Acts 14.27, 1 Corinthians 16.9, 2 Corinthians 2.12, Colossians 4.3. All of these places, when they speak of an open door, talk about ministry. An open door for ministry. They have little power, this church in, in uh, Philadelphia, but they have kept his word and they do not deny his name. And this is the exact type of church that God uses for ministry. A church that is faithful and uncompromising is the only type of church that can have an effective ministry. It's, that can have an effective ministry in God's eyes, what an effective ministry looks like. You cannot help people to repent of the sins that are keeping them from Christ if you refuse to call their sin, sin. You might get people through the doors of your church, but you will not get them through the door of the kingdom if you do not call them to repentance. A church that has soiled its garment in the world has no open door to bring people through. If we hold fast to Christ and to His Scripture, we are the only ones in the position to see people enter the kingdom because people have to, they have to see the contrast of light and darkness. They have to see the contrast, the sin in their life and the need to repent. They can't see some sort of blurred nothingness or, oh, look, I can just, I'll just kind of latch onto this. They have to die to that old life and cling to a new life in Christ. They need to see the difference between what's on the different sides. What feels like to us as a faithful church, if we are a faithful church, what feels like hatred and antagonism is in fact an open door to the only ministry that matters, calling people to turn from sin and follow Christ. It feels like hatred and antagonism, but it's actually an open door. We're the only ones who can do it if if we are the ones fighting against the influence of the culture and sin. Finally, last point, we're called to be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. There's a lot to that. The passage, this passage promises that those who are truly His will remain faithful to Him to the point of death. If this is true, if this is true, then what does it say about those who are willing to turn away from Him when the slander gets a little tough? In the parable of the sower, if you remember in Mark 4, Jesus gives four types of soil. Right? Four types of soil. Only one of them is good soil, but three of them actually begin to give an appearance of good soil at first. There are those who, if you remember here, the word, but their desire for the riches of this world choke it out and expose any faith that they might have shown to be false faith. Their love for the world exposes their faith as false. We see this all the time in our culture. Um, But there is another type. 
the type with no root from Mark 4, 16 and 17. You don't have to turn there, but I, I'll just read it for you real quick. Mark four sixteen and 17, where he says, And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So there's this other type that they endure for a while, but when tribulation and persecution arise because of the word, because of the word that they've received, they fall away. I'm convinced that there are many Christians and even entire churches in this country that are completely made up of this type of soil. And the only reason they still exist is because, thankfully, we live in a country with relatively light persecution, so they have yet to be completely exposed. You can see hints of it everywhere as they respond by changing when the slightest criticism comes along or accusations of being unloving. How many of them will still make a bold declaration for Christ that becomes an offense that could land them in prison? And how many more if it would require their life? Jesus calls us to be faithful to the point of death. Look how he encourages his people uh, to do this by reminding them of who he is. That's what he does in Smyrna. He reminds them of who he is. Look in verse, in verse 8. The angel of church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. To the persecuted church in Smyrna, he reminds them that he is the first and the last. The title everywhere else in Scripture, exclusively reserved for God. In these letters to the churches in, in chapters 2 and 3 are, are bracketed by chapters 1 and 4 and 5, which we read last week and this week this morning, which, which are some of the most astounding descriptions of the divine power and authority and, and the character of who Christ is that you will find in the Bible. And he reminds them that this is who he is, and yet he died and came to life. How is that possible? Because of the miraculous event that we are celebrating this month, right? This time of year, God became man and died in our place. He says in, in 11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who conquers, will, Jesus is, His resurrection from death is the first fruits, the proof that, that we also will not be hurt by the second death. Do you have that understanding that no matter what happens to you in this life, you will never be heard by the second death, which is hell, eternal punishment. It won't touch you. We happily trade this life for the next. We happily do it. Close, if you let me. I want to I share the story of Polycarp to you. I don't know if you know who he is. Uh, he's an early church father. He was actually the pastor uh, in the church at Smyrna. And not only that, but he knew John. And he is likely one of the people who originally heard this read for the first time to Smyrna. He was arrested when he was 86 years old in the city of Smyrna for failing to worship Caesar. We're told that the multitude in the city was crying out, Away with the atheists! Let Polycarp be sought out! They remember they considered Christians atheists because of no idols. They tortured a slave girl to find him. They found him lying in a certain room of a little house from which he might have escaped, but he told those who he was with, let the will of God be done, and went with the Romans. As they were on their way to the stadium, the main general who captured him didn't want to see him die and said to him, what harm is there? What harm is there? in saying, Lord Caesar, and in sacrificing with the other ceremonies observed on such occasions. And so make sure of your safety. But Polycarp remained silent the whole time. And as they kept persisting him and asking him this question, he said, I shall not do as you advise me. 
And as he was brought forward, the tumult around became great. And when they heard that Polycarp was taken, the crowd, uh, when they heard that he was taken, they, they, they got more excited. And on his confessing, on Polycarp's confessing of who he was, the, the council, the pro-council there, tried to persuade him to deny Christ. And they said, have respect to your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, away with the atheists. I love this. But Polycarp, gazing with a stern countenance on all the multitude of the wicked heathen there in the stadium, waved his hands toward them, while with groans looked up to heaven and said, away with the atheists, you know, showing that those are the real atheists. The council said, swear, swear to Caesar and I will give you liberty. Reproach Christ. And Polycarp's response, 80 and six years have I served him and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Since thou art vainly urgent, as thou sayest, I should swear by the fortune of Caesar and pretendest not to know who uh, and what I am. Hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. And if you wish to hear what the doctrines of Christianity are, appoint me a day and thou shalt hear them. And the council then said, I have wild beasts at hand. To these I will cast thee if you don't repent. And Polycarp replied, Call them then, for we are not accustomed to repent of, of that which is good in order to accept what is evil. And it is well for me to be changed from what is evil to what is righteous. The council replied, I will cause thee then to be consumed by fire, seeing that thou despisest the beasts, if thou does not repent. And Polycarp responded, Thou threatenest me with fire which burneth for an hour, and after a little while is extinguished, but art ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why tarriest thou? Bring forth what thy will. And the crowd grew louder, shouted for him to be killed. The Jews assisted the Romans in gathering the wood. And as the flame started, he looked to heaven and said, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of thy beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by powers and of every creature, and of the whole race of the righteous who live before thee, I give thee thanks that thou hast counted me worthy of this day and this hour, that I should have a part in the number of thy martyrs, in the cup of thy Christ, to the resurrection of eternal life, both soul and body, to the incorruption imparted by the Holy Ghost, among whom may I be accepted this day before thee as a fat and acceptable sacrifice, according as thou, the ever-truthful God, hast foreordained, hast revealed beforehand to me, and now hast fulfilled. Wherefore also I praise thee for all things. I bless thee, I glorify thee, along with the everlasting and heavenly Jesus Christ, thy beloved Son, with whom to thee and the Holy Ghost be glory, both now and to the coming ages. Amen. And those were his last words as the fire consumed him. And it took a little while for the fire to consume him, and someone got sick of hearing him and ran up and stabbed him. That's what it means to be faithful to the end. And while many of us won't have that type of opportunity, that's what we should uh, be striving for, to be like that, to end like that, to have an understanding of this life at, like that. Like it's nothing. This life is nothing compared to what he offers. Only now, only now we are to be faithful. Lord God, thank you so much for this time. Uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for your warnings. Thank you for your promise throughout all of this. No matter how bad persecutions get, you are king, you are on your throne, and you are coming again. And one day all of those, all of those who, who have risen against you and who have attacked your church will see you for who you are. God, we thank you for that promise. And we pray for an eternal mindset that will keep us faithful until either you return 
or until, like Polycarp, we meet our death in this life. God, that we would be faithful through no matter what. Thank you for the blood of your Son that allows us to be with you one day, that allows us to have a relationship with you, that saves us from being your enemy to being heirs with him. Thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.